Hello, my friends! Welcome to Rainbow Parenting, a queer and gender-affirming parenting podcast for anyone with littles in their lives. I'm your host, Linz Amer. Today, I am so excited to have Carla Joy Bergman on the podcast. Carla Joy Bergman is the editor and weaver of a brand new book out from AK Press, which is an awesome indie anarchist press called Trust Kids, Stories on Youth Autonomy and Confronting Adult Supremacy. I am absolutely obsessed with this book, and you'll <laughs> you'll see why throughout our conversation. I really encourage you all to listen to this podcast episode and hear Carla talk about the book, but also to get the book yourselves, experience it for yourselves, and dive into the space around youth autonomy and all of the different people who are talking about it, because we're talking about queer and trans kids, but we're also talking about uh, neurodivergence and disability justice. We're talking about teenagers and schools and unschooling and indigenous justice. And just there's so many intersecting ways to talk about youth autonomy. And I mean, uh, also childism is wrapped up in this. And uh, it's there's just a lot to unpack that we couldn't get to all in this one, you know, small hour of time and space that we have together. Uh, but I really, really encourage you to pick up this book wherever you get your books. It's from AK Press, which is a really cool indie anarchist imprint. So you should uh, hopefully feel good and ethical about buying this book. So before we get into my chat with Carla, I've got a couple of things for us to talk about. First of all, the Rainbow Parenting book is coming out in about six months, which is wild to me that this book is going to be out in the world. I just got the jacket art back from my editor and the colors just pop. I am so, so excited for this book to be out in the world. A little bit dreading it um, and terrified, but also very excited for it to be in all of your hands. So if you haven't pre-ordered the book you can. It is available wherever you get books for you to pre-order. Uh, I really hope you do that. Pre-order numbers are super, super important, especially for debut authors like me. If you like this podcast, I 100% guarantee that you're going to like the book. It is a perfect gift for anyone who's expecting in your lives. It's a perfect book for baby showers and really anyone who works with and is around young children. So if you have any educators in your lives or caretakers, or if you have anyone with young siblings or nieces and nephews and nibblings, just anyone with young people in their lives. So if you're listening to this podcast, that is probably you and you probably know other people like that. So please, please, please pre-order the book. We are six months out for the debut date in May, May 30th of 2023. So uh, let's get there, shall we? This is the last episode of season two of Rainbow Parenting. And Wow, this is our 20th episode. That is wild. I have been enjoying making this podcast so much and connecting with all of you in our community. I've been hearing you through our reviews on Apple Podcasts, through my DMs, through the emails you've been sending. I've been getting all of it and intaking all of it. And it is it means so, so much because this is just a good excuse for me to have conversations with really cool people that I admire. And I'm so, so glad the, the conversations are resonating and we're able to to talk about this work out in the world. And something that's also extremely cool about this podcast is that I get to see all the analytics. There have been over eight 
as of today, when I'm recording this, there have been over 8,000 downloads of the podcast over our 20 episodes, which is awesome for a first grown-up podcast that we've been doing. So I'm, I'm really happy about those numbers. And something that's extra cool about that is that we've been downloaded in over 30 countries. This is an international podcast, y'all. So obviously, the United States, that's where I am. That's where I'm based. So we're probably going to get the most from there. But we're also getting a ton of people downloading the episodes in Canada, and in Germany, and in Australia, and the UK, and Spain, France, Jordan, which is very cool, Belgium, Argentina, I think they, we've been getting on some top charts in Argentina. So that's pretty rad. Romania, Finland, Switzerland, Sweden, Norway, they really like us in uh, <laughs> in the northern Europe, I guess, which is pretty cool. India, New Zealand, Ireland, Denmark, South Africa, we're on the continent of Africa, which is really, really cool. Japan, Poland, Portugal, which is a part of my ancestry, so I love that. Brazil, Indonesia, the Philippines, the Netherlands, Czech Republic, Italy, Puerto Rico, Costa Rica, Austria, and Italy. Oh, we are just all over the globe. And that just makes me so, so full that so many people are listening to us. And we're, this is really a global topic because there are queer and trans and non-binary people all over the world. And there are kids all over the world. And there are kids and parents and queer people and trans people and non-binary people and people with all these intersections all over the globe. And we are part of a global mission to spread queer joy. And that just, oh, just fills my heart <laughs> with warmth and hope for the future. And I hope it fills your hearts too. All right. On that note, let's get to my chat with Carla. Hello, folks. Welcome to Rainbow Parenting. I am here today with another incredible guest, Carla Joy Bergman, the editor. And how how would you say your role, what your role is on on the book? Yeah, I like to identify more as a weaver because I Amazing. don't. I, I it's just it's gentle. It's more gentle. I love that <laughs> the weaver yeah. of a brand new book that's come out from AK Press called Trust Kids that I. I'm just completely blown away by, and I'm super excited for this conversation. Hello, Carla. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And uh, I love to come to these conversations as full, whole humans. We have our work. We have our lives. So how are you feeling today? Oh, well, thanks for asking. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a little bit um, frazzled because I'm doing administration work, that, that type of work that yep. takes... Um, a type of focus that's not my Ooh, yeah. biggest skill. I'm a more big ideas person. Uh, I like to dream than mm -hmm. to do crunch numbers. So yep. I'm a bit, I'm um, sorry, listeners. Yeah, I'm a bit distracted, but I'm going to do my best to be present as possible. I very much appreciate that. And I feel <laughs> you hard on the like admin brain and like number crunching. It's something that's tough for me too. And I always like have like, look at my budget on my, um, my to-do list and it just rolls <laughs> over week to week. <laughs> because <laughs> I oh, never really? want to do it. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm doing all right. I am 
this has been a kind of a weird week, but we're, we're I've been having really wonderful conversations and I always love getting to sit and like chat with cool people. That's like really the excuse I have for doing this podcast. <laughs> um, so honestly, getting these interviews on my schedule always makes my days better. And I taught music this morning. So uh, that's always a good oh, start fun. to the day. Yeah. Um, cool. Okay. So Trust Kids, it came out very recently. Um, I... I have so many questions. It's almost hard <laughs> to figure out where to start because I I loved this book. I was so impressed by it. And I'm going to maybe embarrass myself a little bit as an author myself as well, who has a hard time reading books, especially with my neurodivergences. It's like a thing that I've been figuring out. And I don't feel like I read your book. I feel like I experienced it. And I really just like want to dig into that. But first, let's like contextualize it. Can you in your I want to hear like in your own words, how you would describe the book, if you even describe it as a book at all. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like physically, yes, it is uh, qualified as a book. But like, I'm curious if that's how you would define it, how you would define the book in your own words. And just like the story of how the idea for it, how it came together. I want to like get into like that process a little bit before we get into the thing itself. Well, first of all, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. What a beautiful, um, I think that might, I'm, I'm feeling very emotional about that. <laughs> oh my God. It's really, thank you. Yeah, of course. And, and take the time and space you need because again, we're coming at what we do from such a personal place. And like, I am so curious about you as a human (laughs) and like how you come to your work, because this is the first time I've encountered some of your stuff. And um, I'm interested in getting to know you and like (laughs) your emotions are a part of that. And like, I can already tell from talking to you for the first 10 minutes that you put a lot of heart into what you do. And I can relate to that so, so much. And I I cry in so many meetings. <laughs> so well, leaving space for that a little bit as well. Right. Oh, well, this is just so lovely. Um, yeah, I I really appreciate that because, um, I mean, this is my life's work. Mm. Um, it's just everything to me. And it's really hard to talk about because, like, yeah, people, I get asked a lot, what is the book? And I'm like, well, I can tell you what I wrote in the intro because mm. <laughs> I had to contextualize it for this book project yeah. with AK Press. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful, um, particularly to Zach Blue, uh, who's one of the publishers I worked with there mm-hmm. for years. Um, I mean, I sent him the pitch and I think it was less than a day. And he's like, oh my God, yes. Wow. <laughs> this is incredible. And so, you know, that kind of, affirming support right off the bat from mm. a publisher just really as you know as a yeah, writer that's it really huge helps. oh my gosh yeah. um yeah so I really wanted to like you know that's that that's the book part and that's mm-hmm. then we'll put that aside yeah totally but yeah my my work um as a writer really um orbits around the idea of affect theory and emotions mm. and affirming how we can be otherwise or we already are instead of coming at our struggles and our work from a place of negation. So I was the co-author of Joyful Militancy, uh, which is very much about affect mm-hmm. and theories and feelings. So thank you. That is a through line through my work. And I, I really appreciate hearing that that's what emerged from this curation um, for you. Um, mm. Yeah. I mean, it's a book about relationships, mm. a, you know, it's, it really is. It's a book about love and, and affirming on the one hand, affirming how so many folks for so many years since the, the very start of 
this setup of the idea of a child and oppression around that relationship, which really dates back to early European colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always been resistance to that. There's always been people who fought against it. And I really wanted to have that through line through the book that there's always people who did it differently and do it differently. Um, and also showing that adult supremacy is the issue that mm-hmm. Trusting children is, you know, the goal, but the thing that's in the way is adult supremacy and this hierarchical relationship that's uh, everywhere. Um, and I got involved in alternative to education projects really early on with my son. Mm-hmm. Really, like if I really want to say it all started as me becoming a parent and mm-hmm. as a someone who was very completely against hierarchy in every way. And I really, when I think back to it, I was always like that with adults in my mm-hmm. life, even as a kid and with my older siblings, I was always trying, you know, demanding to be heard and trusted and believed. Mm-hmm. Um, often that was faced with uh, more violence and and more distrust, but uh, it just strengthened my resolve. But really it wasn't until I had a child of my own and then I had to like be faced with that practice every single day and every night mm-hmm. <laughs> about like, you know, a higher, you know, power, like how power moves and how it works and, and working on that. And so over the years working with young people and I worked, um, I was a co-director of a youth run arts and activism space in Vancouver, Canada on Squamish Muscoons and Tooth Lands um, called the Purple Thistle Center. And this kind of these kind of ideas of youth liberation and uh, de-schooling were all kind of at play there. And a lot of anarchist ideas of cooperations, mutual aid and, um, and all that. So I got to really experience it out in community as well. But one of the things I noticed as an organizer is that youth oppression and um, adult supremacy was often not uh, included on the axes of oppressions. And this, you know, this is like 10, 15 years ago. And or if it was, it was an afterthought. It was because someone said something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And I still see that that is while there's been lots of more, uh, I would say, individual rights for d- different groups of young people, and there's been so-called wins, um, the mm-hmm. overall uh, oppression of adult supremacy is still very strong and going strong. And so, and I was noticing that a lot of radicals were really solid on the front lines and in their organizing groups, but not necessarily with young people. And mm-hmm. so I came up with the phrase, solidarity begins at home, and I started tweeting that. And and that was the original name of the book. And that was really going to be the focus. But then I realized that this is something after 20 something years in this conversation, my oldest is 28. um, And really paying attention to the historical conversation, you know, from Emma Goldman, Mm -hmm. Kropotkin is probably the only theorist who really got that children are part of the part of the oppression. Mm -hmm. And like, and John Holt and all the wonderful people Mm -hmm. early on. um, that, oh, we need all adults actually on board, on deck for this mm-hmm. conversation. You do not have to be a parent. In fact, and I don't mean to collapse this into sameness because the world is incredibly uneven and terrible, mm-hmm. but, you know, we've all been children. There is, a, we've, I think everyone at some degree has experienced what it's like to not be believed and not trusted and not mm-hmm. heard and not listened to from adults in their life or out in the world. So I uh, intentionally invited in people who aren't parents, um, mm-hmm. who don't even work with young people too. Cause you know, we need, you know, if they're radicals and they're anti-authoritarians and they're fighting against hierarchies, then I want them part of the conversation. I want them here. And then of course, included young people's voices around youth autonomy and what it means to experience youth autonomy in their life or, and what that looks like. I feel like I went off on, on a tangent and went all no, different directions. That was <laughs> wonderful because I think what you're, what you're speaking to is like this lens of 
um, adult hierarchy and oppression of children, childism, all of the other terminologies you might want to use for it, and how that is both a lens for the book, but also like, I mean, we And I don't think it's diminishing anything to say that the one commonality that all humans have outside of just like being human is that we all once were children. And I loved that you as someone who is a early childhood person who is a performer, who does not yet have children, who... I consider myself an expert in the space, but like also always have the imposter syndrome of like, should I be talking to parents if I'm not a parent? I was a child. I have the experience of being a child, especially a trans person, someone who's neurodivergent, Jewish, et cetera, et cetera, all of the identifiers, yada, yada, yada. Um, But like, I thought it's just a brilliant lens through which we can look at oppression and hierarchy and anarchism on a on a larger scale that opens up discussions around so many different kinds of oppression and different kinds of hierarchy and like it wasn't it's not build technically as like a queer book or a book that's about disability justice or about um, racism or any of these other things but like it is so deeply steeped in all of discussions around all of those things. And as soon as I opened it in the first essay, outside of like the intros and the forwards was about a a mom figuring out how to parent a trans kid. And then it was immediately followed by an interview between a parent and their trans kid. And I was I, I like those being the first two essays to introduce this topic. My I was just so impressed by and I was just kind of like, okay, I am in for a ride with this book <laughs> because it I mean, I go into every conversation, you know, with like, okay, what's the bare minimum we can meet of like how we can talk about these things, how we can talk about transness, how we can talk about queerness, how we can talk about kids and everything else. And like immediately the bar was set so high and you just like kept like I don't know, whatever those like track and field races are where they go over the (laughs) the hurdles. (laughs) I was just like, you kept jumping them and getting higher and higher. And I was like, I am learning so much from the way you've positioned all of this. So the idea of you being a weaver and how Mm -hmm. you kind of like brought all of these myriad voices together. I was, I've been thinking about this and like, uh, I said that like, I felt like I was experiencing the book and not reading it. And for me, it was like walking through an art gallery, almost like the same Mm -hmm. kind of feeling I get of like, okay, like maybe this way of framing it, like that doesn't necessarily resonate with me, but like this way does. And like this essay makes sense to my structural brain, but then this essay is challenging what quote unquote a good essay is. And like, then there's poetry and drawings. And I'm just, I wanted to have a conversation with you about the quality of being a weaver and how you wove this together. Thank you. I think that's a beautiful uh, metaphor of the art gallery. A lot of the things I think we can, this, maybe this would resonate with a lot of people, like what, the way that we work in the world or show up in the world has a lot to do about maybe our own needs, mm. um, you know, starting where we find ourselves and moving from there. Um, and so I also have, a neuro, I'm neurodivergent and have a learning disability and have speech apraxia and um, all kinds of barriers around this stuff. And mm-hmm. so in order for, but I also felt the calling as a writer, like deeply. 
publisher, journalists, all that stuff was really up from very early on, but the, the barriers were massive. The gatekeepers mm -hmm. were massive. Um, so I needed so, like huge solidarity and co-writers and editors. But mm -hmm. prior to that, I just self-published and did a, an anthology. And so this idea of weaving in together, emerging new and alternative ways of expressing oneself's voices with more well-seasoned, um, more traditional writers has always been my practice since I started mm. doing any kind of weaving or publishing or editing. And it's always felt really important to think about that also along like in a very intersectional way deeply and really including young people's voices and really thinking through how not to be tokenistic about it mm -hmm. um uh, partly what i did is always have young people on my collectives or on my organizing collective um for this book it's a question i know that's come up a few times on social media you know are kids involved in this book and it's like well my kids very much so mm -hmm. but i i did do ak did ask for a solo editor voice and um there's there's a whole pile of reasons why that works and sometimes uh, having a collective do an anthology can be beautiful but sometimes it can go in too many directions yeah, and totally. so yeah i just eschew the whole idea of any of anything being done in silo so of course mm -hmm. I, I i did this book with all kinds of people um but my two children really were right next to me through this all and my youngest mm -hmm. who i co-host a podcast with um, called Granite Futures who also has an essay in the book Uliam um who's a, a trans youth really helped me think about supporting how to show up and invite in young people in an authentic way. And I'm really grateful for that. You know, a lot of the the book started in 2019. It ended up being quite different. When the pandemic hit, I, I really knew to put the book on hold. I did not want this book to get siloed into a pandemic conversation around yeah. children because then it would forever be about that. I think that's smart for sure. Yeah. And it had meant that I lost um, a good chunk of people mm. because of hardship, that especially folks from other parts of the world who mm. uh, I know the U.S. didn't do well by the pandemic, but there's other places in the world where it was even harder. Yeah. Uh, and so people had to pull out and like particularly in India and um, mm. South Africa and yeah. um, a couple of them were youth. And But it is what it is. And so I just wanted to share that, you know, it is yeah. a... a there's so many people in this book who aren't in this book for a myriad mm. of reasons, right? Who yeah. informed it, who supported me, who I learned from. I also really deeply think about access in a deep sense about like what moves people. And the beauty of anthologies is that, you know, it's the goal is that there's something for everybody. And mm. so there's going to be essays or parts that some folks aren't going to like, or they're not going to connect with. And it's gonna, you know, I get all the different emails and messages and it's, so we were like, why is there poetry in it? I don't get it. And then other people were like, thank you for the poetry. I got mm -hmm. it, you know, <laughs> you know, and it's just this like different versions. And, um, I'm coming out of the, like the ether mm -hmm. as someone who does their work from a really intuitive place. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to always not talk about this, but I actually make most of my decisions from a really deep intuitive place, like of just listening, um, mm. like I, something will pop into my head and I mm -hmm. listen, I trust myself. So what animates the book? Trust. And it's a deep, profound trust in myself as mm. someone who can pull people together, you know, to bring it into a material world plane. Um, I've been doing it for a long time. Yeah, I hope other artists and writers are listening to you say that right now, because I think that is beautiful advice, just like as a creator. And like, that's something I like go in and out of relationship with my intuition and like trusting it and not trusting it. And 
it's something that I find so difficult. And I know when I do find something and I do trust myself, that's that's usually my best work that resonates with people. And Mm -hmm. uh, I find it so hard to keep consistent in that. And I'm so uh, in admiration of your ability to communicate with yourself and trust yourself in that way. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) It's It's been a long road. It's a long road. And also, I want to say I also part of the praxis is trusting the writers and Mm. and the artists who I invited in to come up with what they want to write with. I provide as much support as someone is in need of. Mm. But I'm very light handed when it comes to editing or like people know their story they need to tell. They don't need me to tell them story to tell or you know um so there's like that that trust embedded in the praxis itself with the folks who are involved and uh at different degrees because people need different kinds of support yeah everyone was just so delightful to work with and Mm. i think overall had fun doing being part of it (laughs) yeah well and it comes through and i and i really do believe that like the process like seeps into the thing itself and you can really see that because i i don't know if this is like the best way to phrase this but i think like the book looks at diversity so holistically like we're not just talking about the identities of and experiences of the people who are writing but like they're writing in like lots of diverse structures and like so many different angles at looking at unschooling you're talking to educators who are in the school system you're talking to people who have gone through the schooling system who people who have gone through homeschooling systems and unschooling systems and it like the diversity of experience and the diversity of like the way you could intake that information as a reader, experiencer of the book, I thought was really, really cool. And that um, brings me to, um, you mentioned your child, Uliam, and the essay that Uliam (laughs) wrote. And I'm so curious about the process behind that essay. And also, it just like, it like, when I was 17, uh, I think they were 17 when they wrote this. Yeah, Yeah. Thank you. Um, and I just remember like it was like five paragraph essay all the time. <laughs> and like it was so refreshing to see just someone laying their ideas out on a page and it making sense and that being a good essay. And <laughs> I'm just yeah, I'm really curious about the process yeah. of working with your child too. Yeah, I mean, I've had the experience. Luckily, um, my oldest always wanted to collaborate with me. He, like, I think we were on like five different collectives together. He's mm-hmm. 28 now. He and I wrote an essay together. So we have this like mm. longer experience of collaborating. And I wasn't sure if that's something that me and William would do. But then we start doing the podcasts and I think we're probably more alike. And so it's an interesting process. I really mm. enjoy it. Um, I mean, he's mostly odd school, I would say unschooled most of his life. So he doesn't have that kind of, well, he hasn't been schooled Mm -hmm. (laughs) around writing. Um, But the first thing we did, and it's something I always have done with youth and anybody who faces any barriers with writing or experience is um, to audio record them. Mm. And I did a lot of this when I co-wrote Joyful Militancy. We interviewed me a lot Mm. uh, because I was, I had barrier, I felt very, um, yeah, scared about writing because of my learning disability and speech apraxia and spelling and mm-hmm. all those things. So that's where we started. And it was just so, you know, I just never, he's just always teaches me so much. Like he's the one who, always, you know, who pushed back the whole notion of empowerment. And like, he always just had these like really good ideas. And I never, you know, like to go after like such two big 
overly quoted writers from the past around youth, children, which is E. Cummings quote. Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, I was so impressed with that. I was like, yes, let's take it down. Let's do it. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like I could have never even thought that that's something to even talk about, let alone. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it all came from him. You know, I encouraged him to speak about the web of community that was around him, especially mm. around his queer identity stuff. And because it was really, really important. Mm. Um, that was probably the only like hands-on part I had. Mm. Um, and then of course I uh, did a light edit and the editor, I always find editors like even like more traditional uh, mm-hmm. copy editors really do understand youth, the importance to not squash a youth emerging voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was lightly edited too, which I really, I think it comes through his voice mm-hmm. just really. Yeah. It felt very like, I don't want to say it was like un like polished, but it felt raw. Yeah. Like from the heart. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. There was a rawness to it that was like really refreshing. And then you like look at like <laughs> Rebecca Solnit's article, like, essay in the book. And I'm like, these are, it's so cool that these two essays exist in the same book and like are both really effective in their own ways right and like something and like there was a thread like going from like Uliam's essay and then looking at Rebecca's and like other folks who are talking about like the trauma of their childhoods and then hearing from a young person about like the trauma they're seeing their peers go through and like Mm -hmm. the very like present experience of teenagehood Um, I (laughs) thought that it was just like the the space between those two essays and the threads between them I thought was really really cool too and this is oh, why nice. I'm talking about it as an experience um, yeah can I just say that um that two things I didn't say up front and it's because I always affirm instead of start with negation but mm-hmm. I do really think it's important for folks listening who maybe mm-hmm. don't because the book could maybe seems this way but it is not a parenting handbook mm-hmm. at all I think that you can glean an inspiration and maybe some even tool concrete mm-hmm. tools through reading it if you're someone who caregives or takes care of children on the regular um but that it's just really important it would be kind of the opposite of how I intervene and talk about this conversation in the world because I can never give another parent advice on how to parent their child except for to say listen (laughs) and trust them (laughs) and uh, respond and be there uh and then the other thing is that I didn't really say up front but I think it's important is that this conversation often gets siloed into a school and alternatives Mm -hmm. to school so I really wanted to decenter that is and so the Mm. book's broken up into four sections and there's only one section on school school Mm -hmm. stuff does run through other parts because it is a big part of kids lives under capitalism I'm not Mm -hmm. trying to say it's not there but the oppression of children does not hinge on that yes (laughs) in fact a lot of kids get a break from a like the worst kind of oppression and violence when they go to school so i as someone who may who had the privilege to live in a city where there was a free unschooling deschooling space Mm -hmm. (laughs) that was part of the public system uh that's why we did it otherwise we wouldn't have been able to do it because we're working class like i would have had to figure something else out um which probably would have just been disrupting the propaganda from school all along the way 
So yeah. I just really wanted to say that up front because sometimes this conversation and those of us who've been in it for over a decade mm-hmm. or longer, it gets siloed and pushed and marginalized to a conversation about school yeah. and the privilege around that conversation. Yeah, I appreciate that. And like, I also love that you're talking about this, like not as a guide, a parenting guidebook, because mm-hmm. I, as someone who... <laughs> Who wrote a parenting guidebook that's that's coming out <laughs> later in 2023? Um, it was an extremely, extremely difficult thing to do because it's an incredibly flawed proposition in the first place. And like, is the reason why I'm doing this podcast because I knew that the conversation around queer and gender affirming parenting and child rearing Mm -hmm. is so much more expansive than like a quote unquote guidebook. And um, I love that your book is able to expand beyond that and just like, illustrate experiences and like model how to trust children in so many different ways through so many different experiences. So I really appreciate that. And like school being a sliver of that. Um, <laughs> and because I think that school is, it's a tough thing to figure out and get around. And like, because of the society we live in, like it's not necessarily easy to unschool and especially thinking about socioeconomic status. And like, I mean, I come from like a a family that was very college, like you got to go to college, (laughs) you got to go to a good college. And like, what does that even mean? And like (laughs) separating like, I mean, I was just like seeing a lot of family over the long, like we get time off in America in November and, uh, you know, being around folks who are so embedded in schooling and like I have a lawyer sibling and a doctor sibling. Those <laughs> professions are so steeped in our educational systems. Like it was, it's so hard to like think around decolonizing our lives around school and it's there's just so much more to being a young person than being in school so I I really appreciate that Um, especially like I mean what I do with queer kids stuff in my performances like that's a kind of unschooling that is and like I love that you brought up Fred Rogers in an essay or two and like I think it, it really does sit in context with a lot of thought and a lot of you know, years and ancestors. But I also found it really accessible. Like I didn't have to know like John, uh, John Holt? John Holt. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, see, <laughs> I didn't have I didn't have to know his full bibliography in order to be able to access his thought that you all were expressing and be able mm-hmm. to understand the context at which a lot of people were coming to the thoughts mm-hmm. they were putting in the book. So can you speak to like making these ideas accessible and like how you approach that approaching accessibility. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. First of all, congratulations on your forthcoming book. I I look forward to uh, make sure I um, hear about it. I would like to, I think that um, it's a really important intersection that you're working at is particularly in what's happening in the U S but everywhere. Appreciate that. Yeah. um, I don't know. I think it's partly just, Again, the folks who I invited in are just Mm. really good at talking about these issues in really great ways. Mm -hmm. And also like having met such vitriol 
over the years when I brought mm. this conversation up. Yep. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've been called privileged and in, like from some, you know, really held up uh, radicals who, you know, and mm. I'm just like, wow, like it just, that's why I think I got so emotional about this mm. conversation because it's definitely some fertile ground right now. People are really open to the conversation like mm-hmm. I've never seen before. And yeah. it's exciting to me. And it's, I'm grateful for everybody who's, who's worked at this conversation from way before Holt, but Holt was just incredible. So uh, yeah, learning through, uh, you know, not articulating it well and not talking about it in a way that felt accessible to people or shut people down. And mm-hmm. I just, you know, the school of hard knocks <laughs> like maybe <laughs> got me to a place where it's like, what resonates? Mm. Um, and I really noticed that pivoting away from liberation, youth liberation, to uh, talk about confronting adult supremacy has really... Mm being the thing a thing that's hmm. struck that's really nuanced can you talk a little bit more about that what the yeah difference is there? so I guess you know it kind of reminds me I don't remember you know I'm just hearing bell hooks in my head who by the way <laughs> always <laughs> always oh you know always I always have her in my head um but always uh center children um mm-hmm. in her work um people are always surprised when I tell them she had board books yeah well not only that but she really saw adult supremacy as yeah. like a terrible, terrible thing. And, uh, and uh, you know, this whole idea that, like, if we don't actually deal with this, we can do all the liberation movements we want, mm-hmm. but we're just going to keep replicating yep. and be back here because we're raising kids with internalized oppression who are yes, going to replicate. And it absolutely. just keeps going. So anyway, so she comes to my head in terms of, like, um, so I'm going to age myself a bit. Um, but, you know, like... I guess more like second wave feminism or whatever, where it was still like the women's liberation movement. And she was like, like, come on, we got to like move away from the siloed movement and think Mm -hmm. about patriarchy. And a lot of women in the seventies and the eighties, um, cis women, you know, they threw children under the bus for their rights in all kinds of ways. I'm talking about corporal, like, you know, spanking and hitting children at home was still legal in a lot of places, but they got their right to vote or they got their right to divorce and, I don't really want to go down the rabbit hole of what the problem with rights because, you know, when you, because <laughs> that's just the problem in itself. But mm-hmm. I think like liberation uh, is collective liberation is the goal, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah. when we silo our movements into an individual grouping of people in a liberated movement away from like that, it can cut us off from this multi-generational, um, mm-hmm. but also like a diversity of topics, um, of tactics of topics of like working against the Hydra of empire and all its tentacles harming various different bodies and peoples and land and water. And mm. like just thinking about it intersectionally in a deeper way. Why does adult supremacy exist? And I don't, I really got off topic. I got into bell hooks and was like, yeah. <laughs> I'm always down Russ. for a bell hooks rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's similar. Like, I think I really wanted to just think more about autonomy instead Mm -hmm. of liberation, because it's something we can enact right away Mm -hmm. through acts of solidarity. Like, you know, no group that's the oppressor can liberate the group they're oppressing. Nobody. Mm -hmm. And I've had, unfortunately, people call me a child liberator, and I just like almost fall over and faint. Like, it's so upsetting that it it actually just shows how deeply adult supremacy is and it's, mm-hmm. it's so deep, right? That people can't even fathom that, like, no, you can't liberate. <laughs> I mean, I always try to say to people, swap out children 
for another group that's marginalized and see how problematic that statement is. I'm not even going to tell you what group to say, but just in your head, and then you'll hear you'll hear it. And people always go, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I cannot liberate children, but I can be in solidarity and do my own work at confronting my own adult supremacy, mm -hmm. which, by the way, I have tons of and have to work on every single day and then create and work with to create more autonomy in their everyday, whether it's bodily autonomy or just just all autonomy. <laughs> Brilliant.org is the best way to learn STEM subjects through online interactive lessons. You can learn math and science, even computer science. Brilliant has thousands of lessons with new ones added every month. Brilliant has everything from pre-algebra to calculus to algorithm fundamentals and even an introductory lesson to neural networks. Wow. <laughs> Brilliant's intuitive interactive lessons are perfect for lifelong learners, especially anyone who wants to maybe brush up on long lost skills and stay sharp to help young folks in your lives with their homework. It's also great for folks who love to follow their curiosity and explore cool ideas and even find new hobbies. Everyone in the family can find something awesome to learn on Brilliant. To get started for free, visit brilliant.org slash rainbow parenting. That's brilliant dot org slash rainbow parenting. I am I'm really curious as someone who's been in conversations around childism for a really long time. I'm curious about like how you've been seeing that conversation shift? Like, have you been seeing it come more into like mainstream discourse? Like, I feel like more people are starting to become aware of it, but like, it's not as deeply embedded as like our understanding of it is poten uh, potentially. So I'm, I'm curious about like any kind of like trends you've been seeing shifts around the conversation, because I don't think that like, I think this book is like, potentially less niche than it would have been like what 10 years ago so i'm i'm curious about yes. how you've seen that like cultural shift around like the understanding of right. the oppression of children right big question yeah oh yeah <laughs> yeah and, you know it's funny like everyone i like gaslight myself sometimes mm. and say like oh this book isn't necessary everything's fine <laughs> and oh, yeah that's I, not true at all no, oh my god i know i i go all over the place um so yeah so i first had this idea for this book um in fact i found an old social media post from a decade ago that said, I'm going to do a book called Listen Adults, Trust Kids, Solidarity Begins at Home or something. It was something mm -hmm. like that. But, you know, no way. It wouldn't have, it would just totally stayed on the margins. It wouldn't have probably moved hardly at all. Mm -hmm. uh, this book was right on time um, in lots of ways. Yeah, so, I really think so too. I agree. Yeah. And I think the pandemic had a lot to do with that. I think people were faced with all kinds of stuff around. Well, um, they were uh, actually around their children. I know. I know. And also during that, like I was still on social media then and seeing like in the real, on Instagram, like people posting, you know, people think they can be so funny about their hatred of children. And it's just so upsetting yeah. to me. So it also fueled me, right? So on the one hand, we yes, it is a fertile ground for the conversation. I think it's never been more open. But on the other hand, uh, oppression of children is just as bad as it's ever been. And in some ways, as you know, particularly LGBT plus queer kids, like 
it's still brutal. And BIPOC kids as well, and kids with learning disabilities and and uh, neurodifferences, it's still a horror show there for a lot of them. And uh, Uliam, speaking of Uliam, the, um, during the the colonial holiday that y'all just had, but mm-hmm. one that you know people coming together to eat together is always a good thing. Yeah. Um, he went online and he said, I feel really gaslit by social media right now because mm. here's what's happened. I just went on that platform and I saw all these radical parents and radical families posting about their radical family stuff. And mm. I was like, oh, wow, maybe things are better for kids. And then he's like, I went on my own personal Twitter and every single one of his friends and mutuals, as they call them, <laughs> from all over the world, but particularly from the US um, Mm -hmm. were tweeting about their trauma of being at home and Mm -hmm. being around the transphobic aunt or the grandmother who hates them or, you know, um, various eating stuff going on. And food is one of the places where youth autonomy is so, so brutal. Yeah. And he was like, it's so, I'm just so confused. And I was like, yeah. So we just have to look at numbers to see that, yes, the conversation is more open, especially in our orbits when mm. we go online, more people are tweeting about it than ever. Uh, youth liberation is still the focus, unfortunately, but um, instead of adults like dealing with the actual freaking mm-hmm. problem. But then you just got to go and do the like, I'm less likely to do this, but okay, I have academic friends like Toby Rolo who wrote for the book and stuff and look at the actual numbers. <laughs> of uh, youth and teen suicide. Mm-hmm. I haven't actually looked this up, but a friend who lives in a city in uh, upper state New York said that every two days there's a kid gone missing and it's every single one is a runaway um, mm-hmm. and they're found. So there's a couple different narratives happening. It's 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 both. It's getting better on a lot of the people even talking about it. I, I don't get faced with the same disgruntled you know yeah. <laughs> oh here's Carla and talk about kids again like ugh. no I think <laughs> it's no it's a really really important conversation and I, I think that your illustration of Yulium's experience online with these like two different feeds and algorithms mm-hmm. really is a a helpful illustration. It's mm-hmm. one thing to like say you're doing all this stuff and there's like a, a the experience of it is something entirely different. And like it's hard. It's really yeah. hard deconstructing your own adult oppression of the young people in your life is really really difficult and it's made difficult by white supremacy on purpose. As with Absolutely. any other form of yeah. discrimination, like it's so hard to see sometimes. And I don't know how to help people take the blinders off, but I think reading this book is one way to help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I hope so too. Yeah. I, that and the whole notion around sanism are kind of the two places mm. where people are really stuck. Like um, before I went off social media, one of my interventions was constantly asking journalists to uh stop calling people like Trump and uh, children um, or insane. Like mm-hmm. it's such an insult, like just replace child or that with any other grouping of people. And you'll see how bad it is, how violent it is. Yeah. Like Liam, when he, when Liam was like 10 or whatever, he'd be like parents who compare people like Trump or other billionaire sociopaths and like, like literally people who are, really not doing good things to this planet and to it. Yeah, there are studies that they've lost their empathy. Yeah. When they are doing things that are horrific and the parents are sitting around calling them childish, 
like Uliam just says, my kid, I call him Uliam and Liam. He mm-hmm. goes by both names. He, um, just not to confuse listeners, but he, um, <laughs> he often says like, those kids must be like, just must internalize this, like mm. this hatred. And I think like getting back to this conversation, like while it, this conversation of youth oppression is getting more known in mainstream and while people are talking more about youth liberation beyond mm-hmm. tokenistic voices that are allowed to be youth voices, yep. like particularly white kids on, on front lines of environmental protests, especially. Yep. Are always, I've always been welcomed. That there's an increase of actual hatred of children that mm. is it being exposed. And it's uncomfortable um, because it's a real issue we have in this society. And Toby writes a lot about this, Toby Rolo. Mm. And, um, I think it's really important it's hard, but it's there. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's really hard to separate from like the por- performativism of like loving your child too. And like loving, <laughs> like being like a family unit. And like, that's not a bad thing to want to do no. that, but like, and like want to have that, but like, it's where that is a performance and where it is a facade that it can be harmful. And there's a lot to dissect about that. And and <laughs> we only have so much time um, yeah. because I want to zoom in on one of the essays uh, to move from macro to micro um, because I am absolutely obsessed with the Magneto essay that you all wrote. Um, This is, I don't know, if people aren't nerds and don't want to hear me talk about X-Men, like maybe this is the time where you turn off this episode because we're going to get into (laughs) it because like this, like it just collides directly with some of my special interests. I love superheroes. I love of like nerdy stuff i am like uh, unfortunately love the marvel series and uh, <laughs> i actually did a rewatch of all of the x-men movies earlier this year because i was really feeling like pulled to it because of the magneto conversation that i actually think is happening when i and then when i went to the essay i was like oh my god this is speaking to me so <laughs> specifically and so i want to talk to you about the magneto article and and i think like the essay itself first of all like i am a person who understands the world through storytelling and so i love a cultural critical piece that i thought it was just like a really beautiful like bow to wrap the book in as like we got kind of toward the end of it cuz it was really an essay about like Magneto is a real hero of X-Men. And like, what if we took this character out of the context of the series and like gave him like a utopia of like what we are all like trying to build towards? And like, what could that quote unquote school like, what could that have been in this, like, mm-hmm. world of, like, mutants <laughs> in the in the world? <laughs> but, like, also, like, using that as a metaphor. And I'm really interested in Magneto also. And you didn't touch on this in the essay, so I'm curious about your thoughts on it, too. That um, he's a Holocaust survivor. Yeah. And yeah. that is something that really pulled, as a Jewish person, like, that really pulled mm-hmm. me toward a story. And, like, yeah absolutely his radicalism makes so much sense within that context because he literally saw his mother get pulled away from him and gassed in the chambers at Auschwitz and I think like in terms of the conversation around like neurodivergence and queerness and disability that's like throughout the book like these are like the doctors like Asperger. Like, there's a reason why we don't call certain kinds of autistics Asperger's, having Asperger's anymore, because he was a quote unquote scientist who was experimenting on people during the Holocaust. And like, it just, it just felt like 
that character wraps so many things together. So I'm, <laughs> those are my just like initial thoughts and feelings. <laughs> I have a lot oh, of them. Really. Thank you. So I'm, I, I'm really curious about how that essay came to be and like how you were able to use it as kind of like a keystone for the book, it, it, at least in my opinion. Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm, um, hello, fellow Magneto fan. Ah, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, first, I'd like to say up front that my uh, son, Zach, who I co-wrote it with, is not actually a, a big, big Marvel fan. Mm. He loves superheroes and that world. He's a, Grant Morrison's like his favorite. Mm. Um, and I always wonder what Grant Hey, Grant, if you're listening, what do you think of my Magneto pitch? Because <laughs> I, I feel like they they did a very different take on Magneto oh, in yeah. our, their rendition. But anyway, so I digress. So I just wanted to say that, but Zach, who I co-wrote with, um, uh, we did watch a lot of Magneto, uh, a lot of X-Men together when mm. he was growing up and um, a little bit of the comics. One of the things why we went into there was I'm very interested in the, even though I decentered it in the book, I'm uh, very interested in the different styles of alternative schooling and alternatives to schooling and where they like really entrench individualism or replicate systems of this like work for the state. And I, and it just occurred to us that, oh, my God, that's what Xavier's doing. Um, mm. Like he's really showing up well for on an emotional level for these young people. But then he immediately assimilates them into being war machines for the state. Yeah. Ooh, it's like this weird assimilation. Like when you really I'm sorry, I'm pulling it back. And anarchists overall have always really um, had an affinity and, and liked Magneto because, mm -hmm. you know, even Stanley himself was like, you know, Magneto was not a, is not supposed to be seen as an evil person, mm. um, just a very um, wounded person, but like a, yeah, and I appreciate you bringing up the Holocaust stuff. We did talk, we ran out of space, like we have about four more uh, paragraphs that didn't make it in. I and we also, both not being Jewish, <laughs> felt like maybe that was one of the things we would let go mm. in this essay. And we focused more, we really wanted our personal story in it. Yeah. Because uh, I do, I agree with storytelling is actually what works mm -hmm. um, to move people. And so Zach being autistic, but not formally diagnosed as a young kid, because at the time it would have been Asperger's. It's interesting mm -hmm. about that up. He was often called quote-unquote Aspie. Mm -hmm. So we just really wanted to think about how Magneto is a symbol. So anybody can be a Magneto and the helmet mm -hmm. is a really good metaphor for folks who are doing that frontline work um, with youth autonomy and confronting adult supremacy. Like, you know, you kind of have to wear this helmet because mm -hmm. people are going to really like try to sow insecurity into you that you're messing up your children or you're messing up young people in general. And oh, yeah. You should talk to my therapist. <laughs> <laughs> right, <Okay. laughs> right? It's so true. So by Grant, who did the art in it, the comics of me and Zach, Zach as a little boy and me as Magneto mm. as a, you know, a non-binary. I feel like Magneto would be non-binary. Oh, yeah. But wearing the helmet and at the end, the helmet obviously has this like, has flowers growing out of it mm. and it's mm -hmm. no longer needed. And that's the goal. The goal is to have a multi-generational, horizontally run, like community and a network of them and there's magnetos everywhere support um working mm -hmm. against the adults who are trying to subjugate children we were both a bit nervous so we thought oh real fans are going to be really upset i think we write right in there that when we know we're taking some leaps yeah well i think that that's what the point of cultural criticism is too to be able totally, to that's like what's, yeah and then we're allowed to and 
you know, if I was writing a script on a Magneto character, I could do this, you know, so mm-hmm. why couldn't I do it in an essay form? Um, and that's where we kind of, how we intervened, but mm-hmm. yeah, it was really fun. And, um, it was the last thing I did for the book. Like it was mm-hmm. very last, I realized I was like, oh, the kid who taught me all about trusting kids isn't in this book. Like mm-hmm. you should be part of this book, Zach. Um, mm-hmm. why don't we co-write an essay together? And so that's how, uh, and it just seemed to just flow and you know we really wanted to work on narrow di- like talk about it newton newton says narrow difference mm-hmm. frame because it well it just works for both of us in our personal stories but also mm-hmm. um there's just a good way to orient the, the conversation yeah and also like you know we also wanted to acknowledge that the role and the importance of someone like xavier and that's a lot of those rad teachers in schools or those alternative schools that are doing like less harm right like they're yeah they're important but I've always had a problem with his like you're not broken line it's like yeah you know like rogue like she touches people and they die like she needs actually some sincere uh care and support mm-hmm. and also a place to be free which is more in Magneto's orbit than yeah. to be a freaking warrior for the state yeah, because I think something that I always like, like in my like love of superheroes and like Marvel in particular, like there's the like enjoyment of it, but then there's also like the military propaganda of, of it all yeah. that like is uh-huh. really hard to reconcile. And I thought you did a really good job of like holding both of those truths of it and interrogating it in a meaningful way, which I don't think enough people do with Marvel. <laughs> and it really got yeah. me thinking because I think, you know, it's it's hard to, especially I'm thinking of like the first movie with like Hugh Jackman and right. and yeah. Ian McKellen and um, Patrick Stewart. Thank you, Sir Patrick Stewart. Um, and I, I mean, grew up with that movie. I love that movie. And mm-hmm. thinking of Magneto, and you mentioned this in the essay of like thinking of Magneto as like a Malcolm X and Xavier mm-hmm. as a uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And like just like the plot of that first movie, in that like Magneto wants to use this terrifying machine to like turn everyone into a mutant, and then they're gonna accidentally accidentally turn into these like uh, he's gonna kill all of the normies and they're gonna turn to blobs and I've, I've been I've been like rolling around with that in my head because I don't I actually think the metaphor of the plot of that and I'm curious about your thoughts on that I I actually think it maybe works and like bear with me for a second because I'm not <laughs> saying that we <laughs> we should turn everyone into blobs but I do think like something that you get at in the book is that like we are all neurodivergent we are all Mm -hmm. different like normal quote unquote is an illusion right Mm -hmm. and so like what if we look at that machine as like just like unveiling that to everyone Mm -hmm. and like yes some people are going to turn into blobs because they're not ready for that realization (laughs) and like that is a really hard to have that knowledge and then be in your present body and those two things like to pull from another movie that I love um the matrix and like why they don't bring (laughs) everyone out of the matrix when they're like adults um I don't know if everyone has the context of that movie as well but um I yeah it just really got me thinking about the movie itself and the plot and like how to reconcile this like 
analysis of it and like i actually think the plot works <laughs> no, i don't know i love that i hadn't really thought of that that it's true i mean you know i think that yeah it is an illusion normous so-called normal like it's just that maybe you're better at wearing masks you know like mm. if we could take off if we could get rid of all the masks the freedom we would feel to be on a bashedly unapologetically ourselves um but not in an individualistic way but thinking in a collective freedom way yeah liberation way i love it i think that's great yeah I, um, yeah and we do like we do point to that like a lot of the writers were stuck in their their worldviews and um we're not we weren't really doing a deep dive into the each movie no, iteration no, no. <laughs> partly because of space but yeah oh yeah no but and it just i'm just I saying that, that it, though yeah it just got me thinking because like that's the yeah. thing that makes him quote-unquote evil in the series right I is know. that like this yep. thing that he's doing is trying to it like ends up killing people and like in like it would basically be a mass murder of like all of manhattan and i i think like if you I don't know, because I was it was just swirling around from the essay because I was like, oh, this is so cool. I love it. Yeah, it just it takes away the evilness. He's a revolutionary, which means like if we're going to actually get rid of, you know, the larger system that everything falls under, like empire, mm. they're actually going to abolish the empire. There's going to be violence like there just is this, this whole wide notion that there's there can't be violence is just keeping everything in place and our subjugation mm. in place. So yeah, Magneto's a revolutionary and Xavier's uh, a reformer. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you for <laughs> indulging me on that. I hope. No, thanks for asking. <laughs> I don't always get asked about that essay. I'm sure a lot of people go, oh my God. I mean, there, there's a lot of theory in it too. It's not Oh, a, there's it's... tons of theory in it, which is why I yeah. liked it is that it was <laughs> taking this thing that like is so cool and like putting it in context of theory and in the, of the book and making the metaphor of it all makes sense. And it just, it really got my brain going in like a really cool way. So I, I I've that. been enjoying that. Um, cool. All right. <laughs> Hopefully listeners enjoyed me going on <laughs> that tangent. Um, is there anything we didn't touch on that you wanted to talk about? I mean, there's always so much to talk about this yeah, conversation. Yeah, of covered it i don't know <laughs> cool cool <laughs> cool you. that's great um uh i'm gonna just wrap things up and this is where you can plug all of your things obviously oh. everyone needs to get the book and read the book um but where can people <laughs> find you on the internet um what should people interact with with you and your work uh just Tell us, tell us all of the things. Okay, thanks. <laughs> yeah, so you can get anywhere in the world, you can get it at AK Press, but I know that shipping costs are a lot. So, um, you know, local bookstore. Um, I got it on my Kindle. I mean, Amazon, ugh, but I got it on my Kindle because that was the easiest way for me to access it. Yeah, I mean, whatever way you can get it. Uh, it's in, um, I actually, my son, Zach, did the audio version of the book. Ooh. So it's an audio, which is pretty, pretty meta and special that Amazing. he read it. Um, I do a, a podcast with my other son called The Grounded Futures Show. You can find us at groundedfutures.com or wherever you find podcasts. I am not on any social media <laughs> anymore Love um, as myself, but you can get me through Grounded Futures through Instagram or all the different places. And I also am a I do a micro press through listeninghousemedia.com. You can mm. find me there as well. Yeah. I think that's it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Everyone go read the book. Go read the book. Thank you so much. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that chat with Carla as much as I did. 
really, really, really highly encourage you to pick up your own copy of Trust Kids. As you can tell, I am absolutely obsessed with it. You gotta read that Magneto article for yourself. I promise it is worth it. All right, this was the last episode of Rainbow Parenting in 2022. We've done two seasons of 20 episodes, and it has just been an absolute joy to be in your ears this past year. Thank you so, so much for listening. We're going to be back with a season three in 2023, probably in the spring. So we're going to have a bit of a longer hiatus than we did before. So keep an eye on the feed for that. As always, you can check out our social media. I am at Linz Amer, L-I-N-D-Z-A-M-E-R. And you can check out all of our work at Queer Kid Stuff, just one child, one kid. And if you want to support us over on Patreon, you can head over to the Queer Kid Stuff Patreon page and you can support us for $5 a month or $50 a year. Either of those works. We would so, so, so appreciate the support building community like this and building financial stability are one and the same and they are so, so important. So would so appreciate if you could support us over on our Patreon page. All right. That is me signing out for 2022. I will see you all in the new year. Thank you so much for listening. Talk soon. Rainbow Parenting is hosted and created by me, Linz Amer. It's produced in partnership with Multitude and is edited by Misha Stanton. The theme music is by Amanda Darchangelis and the logo artwork is by Abe Tenzia.